1997 in Arizona, United States, a 41-year-old man woke up to the sound of the police knocking on his door. He was arrested despite not having any idea as to what was going on. At the police station, he learned that his wife was dead and that he was the responsible. Today, I will talk about the case of Scott Falata and his wife, Yarmila Falata. Scott and Yarmila Falata lived in the US state of Illinois. They met while they were still in high school. They started dating at age 17 and their relationship continued through college. Yarmila studied pedagogy and Scott studied electronics. Both came from middle-class Catholic families and had the same ambitions to succeed professionally, get married and have children. In his third year of college, Scott met a group of Mormon missionaries and soon converted to that doctrine. He started to attend the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. He convinced Yarmila to do the same, but days before her baptism, Yarmila left the religion. This caused some stress in the relationship and they broke up. But sometime later, Yarmila realised that love was stronger and ended up going back with Scott and completed her baptism in the new religion. They ended up getting married in the Mormon church temple before they even graduated from college. Already married, the two decided to do a master's degree and chose the city of Phoenix, Arizona, which, after Salt Lake City, had a large concentration of Mormons. There, the two were quickly inserted into the community and they prospered. Scott became an engineer for the large multinational Motorola and Yarmila took a job as a preschool teacher. Over the course of their marriage, the two had two children, Megan and Michael. In addition, they also adopted a golden retriever dog and bought a huge house with a swimming pool in a residential neighbourhood. With Megan already in college and Michael about to graduate from high school, the couple started to make retirement plans. The two were also very active in the church. Scott, in addition to working a 70-hour week at Motorola, taught religion at church and volunteered as a personal and family counsellor. In the year 1997, Scott was 44 years old and Yarmila was 41. They were in a happy marriage, with no history of abuse, worrisome fights or financial problems. Apparently there was nothing wrong with the Falatas, other than the simple fact that Yarmila was not as enthusiastic about the church as Scott was. Of course, she didn't mention this to anyone. Speaking to her mother, she said she loved Scott, but she thought he devoted an excessive amount of time to the church. Particularly as he already worked overtime at Motorola, which meant he often did not have time for his family. She started, on occasion, to not attend church to see if that would make him stay home, but it didn't work out. He always left her at home while he went to work and attended church. On the night of January 16, 1997, Scott arrived home late from work. His entire team depended on him. It was he who developed the Motorola StarTac device. The race against Nokia was fierce and Scott and several other company employees barely slept. When he got home that Wednesday night, he had dinner in a hurry and went to the back of the house to fix the pool pump that was broken. He spent a good deal of time trying to solve this problem. Unable to fix it, he was tired and knew he would have to work early the next day. He decided to go inside and go to sleep. 
In the living room, he found his wife on the couch watching TV. He said he couldn't finish repairing the pump now, but would look at it the following day. For now, he was tired and needed to sleep. He asked if she was going to bed as well, but she said she would in a couple of minutes, once she was finished watching an episode of a TV series. At 3am, Greg Coons, a neighbour, was awakened by screams coming from the house next door. He peeked over the fence and witnessed Scott repeatedly stab his wife by the pool. Greg took out his cordless phone to call the police, but he still kept looking over the fence. On the phone, he described everything he saw. Scott walked back into the room and closed the glass doors. Greg watched Scott change his shirt and go back down to the pool area. Yarmila was trying to get up. Scott dragged her to the edge of the pool and held her head under the water for several minutes. Then he went to the trunk of his car, put something inside, returned into the house, and Greg did not see him again. At around 4am, the police arrived at the scene. Scott was sleeping. He was woken up by the doorbell and he opened the front door. They asked how many people were in the house and Scott said four. His wife, his kids and him. The policemen asked to enter, and Scott, he let them get in. They searched the house and found the crime scene by the pool. Immediately, they handcuffed Scott and removed him from the property. He claimed he didn't know what was going on. At the police station, he was told that his wife was dead and he fell into complete despair. But his despair turned into shock and confusion when he was accused of killing her. Sometime later, Scott told the police that he didn't remember his actions because he suffered from sleepwalking. In his version, he remembered going to sleep after trying to fix the pool pump, then waking up at 4am to the sound of the doorbell. According to the police version, based on the information from the neighbour and the autopsy, what probably happened was the following. Scott stabbed his wife a total of 44 times with a knife, drowned her, changed clothes and put both the clothes soiled with blood as for the knife used in the crime inside a Tupperware container. Soon after, he hid it in the step of his car, a Volvo. Whether he did all this consciously or not, the police could not say. But when the factual evidence was put together, it proved Scott's guilt. In her testimony at the police station, Scott's sister Laura said that once, when she and Scott were still teenagers, she tried to wake him up during an episode of sleepwalking. He reacted by throwing her to the other side of the room. This type of defence, sleepwalking, was nothing new to the state of Arizona. In 1982, another Phoenix resident was successfully defended by his attorney claiming that his sleepwalking also caused the death of his wife. On that occasion, the man also attacked his wife with a knife, striking her 26 times. The possibility of sleepwalkers committing a crime is a fact, but it is up to the courts to analyse the issue, assess the evidence and decide what to do with the defendants. During the investigations, the version of sleepwalking was accepted by the authorities. They sent the accused to the Sleep Disorders Research and Care Centre, 
where specialists would study his brainwaves over a period of four consecutive days. In tests, they found abnormalities in Scott's brain consistent with those of sleepwalkers. The results showed that he had interruptions in his sleep phases just before the dream phase, typical of sleepwalking cases. Several sleep experts testified at the trial. Some said that people who sleepwalk often engage in the same activities that are part of their daily routine, but that the more complex the activity, the less likely the sleepwalker is to perform it. However, others said that it is rare but possible for someone to commit an act of extreme violence in their sleep, even if they are not normally violent. But, according to both groups of experts present, both the defence and the prosecution, is sleepwalking is a disorder whose cause was still unknown, especially at this time. What was known was that the disorder was characterised by carrying out motor activities without the person being fully aware of what they were doing. Part of their brain function stayed dormant while they were in a state of transition between sleep and wakefulness. Therefore, sleepwalkers do not remember or remember very little what happened. They also agreed that this disorder manifested itself more in males. Some factors such as stress and depression could increase the risk of developing the disorder. Psychologist Rosalind Cartwright, who was a defence witness, said that in some cases sleepwalkers have committed foolish acts such as destroying their furniture and breaking glass and harming their bodies without waking up. Her theory was that Scott, while sleepwalking, went to the pool to finish fixing the broken water pump. Probably Yarmila would have approached to question what he was doing. In a fight or flight impulse, he attacked her. But why would he have felt threatened by his own wife? According to the defence, sleepwalkers are unable to process facial recognition during these episodes, so Scott must have confused Yarmila with a stranger. According to sleep disorder specialist Dr Mark Pressman, a scream or a bark of a dog can awaken a sleepwalker. He also stated that a sleepwalker does not create memories during a sleepwalking episode. This suggested that by hiding the evidence, Scott knew what he was doing. During the six-week trial, the prosecution theorised that Scott had planned to kill Yarmila, go back to bed, let his children find their mother the next morning and assume that a home invader was responsible. They also added that Yarmila was not wearing her wedding ring when police found her body, something she never took off. For them, Scott planned to use sleepwalking as a defence, should the intruder plan fail. Scott himself testified for almost two hours. In the end, the jury was not convinced that he was sleepwalking during the entire attack. At the end of the trial, Scott still maintained that he had no memory of what had happened. The only thing he knew was how much he had loved his wife. He tortured himself imagining what must have gone through her mind as he attacked her. It must have been terrible, confusing and terrifying. As difficult as it was to solve a crime like this, someone would have to pay for what happened to Yarmila. Whether Scott had a clear conscience or not, the fact that he could not maintain his position in society was already clear during the hearings. The question was whether to send the accused to a clinic or prison. In July 1999, the jurors sentenced Scott to the death penalty. 
Weeks after the sentence, the judge received several letters pleading for clemency. But it was the request from Meghan and Michael, the couple's children, that most influenced his decision. Meghan, then 19, and Michael, 16, said that Scott was a great father and that they wanted to continue their relationship with him. Both begged for their father to be kept alive, saying they wished they could be with him again and visit him often in prison. Yarmila's mother, at the request of her grandchildren, also wrote asking that Scott be kept alive, but behind bars. Accordingly, the Maricopa County Superior Court judge refused to formalise the death penalty process and instead commuted his sentence, Scott, to life imprisonment without the possibility of appeal. According to an Arizona State Department of Corrections report, Scott has been a good prisoner. In the prison of the city of Yuma, he serves out his sentence working as a teacher and as an assistant in the library. The couple's daughter, Megan, who is now 42 years old, is married and holds a PhD in history. Like her mother, she works as a teacher. Michael, today is 39 years old and married, has four daughters and is a lawyer. Hey, você se interessa por crimes reais, serial killers, coisas macabras e tem um senso de humor um tanto quanto sórdido? Se sim, você não está sozinho. Se você precisa de um lugar recheado de pessoas como você, venha conhecer o podcast Pátria Amada Criminal. Todas as semanas tentamos entender o pior da humanidade. Nesse processo a gente ri, chora, fica brava, fofoca, porque afinal de contas é assim que a gente fala quando está entre amigos. Suas novas melhores amigas trevosas estão aqui no Pátria Amada Criminal. 